Um, all right, so last week we introduced, we started this, what's going to be a very long uh, series, study through the book of Acts. Um, and we saw last week that Acts is a second part. It's the sequel to, uh, sequel to Luke's first collection, his first book, the Gospel of Luke. And Acts is a continuation of that story. Um, the Gospel of Luke dealt with, according to Acts 1, everything Jesus began to do and teach. And this, in his second volume, the book of Acts is, by implication, what he continued to do and to teach. Therefore, the book of Acts is not just the Acts of the Apostles, as it's been called, but it, it very much is the Acts the activity of the living and active, risen Jesus through his people, through the Spirit. The opening of this book, we looked last week, it highlights a series of things that the disciples needed in order to be um, faithful, used tools in what Jesus was going to continue to do um, on the earth as he continued to do and teach. Real quick, I just want to revisit these. First thing we said, he, they needed a commissioning. They needed to be told to go and to, uh, to be used by God. They, they received this commission in verse 2 through the Holy Spirit. Second thing they needed was they needed evidence. They needed proof that Jesus was really, really alive and really um, moving and active. So he appeared and was among them, ate with them, taught them, spent 40 days with them, gave them many convincing proofs. Third thing is they needed more instruction about the kingdom. And this one is sort of mind-boggling to me. These guys had spent a lot of time with Jesus. And something... <laughs> Something had so revolutionary, so revolutionary had happened in the in the cross and the resurrection, that they needed to basically relearn all that they thought they knew about the kingdom, all that they thought they knew. They, he spent forty days teaching them. That's basically as far as we got last week. Three verses, and I told you, I stood up here and I said, we're gonna, we're not going to go this slow every week. We're going to go through this book. We'll. It'll be about a year, and then tonight, two verses, <laughs> two verses, four and five. What? And I was right, yeah. It's going to take a while. Uh, verse four and five, we, we can't really go much further. They're so important. These two verses are so important to the rest of the development of this book uh, that we had to just camp here, spend, spend some time on these two verses these two verses show um, it's the fourth of these crucial things, these imperative things that these disciples, the apostles needed um, in order to be most efficient, most um, used, the best activated as Jesus continued to teach and to work on the earth. What is it specifically? They needed what? We, what Luke calls here the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But first, 
they have to wait. First, they wait. The first thing they're commanded to do here is to wait. Let's, uh, let's look at this. I know he just read it, but we're going to read it real quick. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. And while they were staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not, not many days from now. Jesus commanded them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem. Apparently, Jesus has done everything he could. He has taught them everything he could teach them in that moment, everything they needed. And evidently, there's nothing left for them to do but wait. So he says, wait. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise, the language that Luke uses here, the promise of the Father. Jesus knew that really they, there's nothing they could do, there's nothing they could do effectively for the kingdom in their own power. And this is, I think, an interesting thing here is that we, I mean, if we had 40 days taught by Jesus personally, where he opened the Old Testament and expounded the gospel to us throughout all the scriptures, and he spent 40 days teaching us the ways of the kingdom and proving his, his resurrection, we would be like, well, I'm equipped. This is enough. Let's go. Let's share the good news. Evidently not. Jesus tells them to wait. They need something else. He knew that they couldn't be effective until they had received this baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've heard it said that the first word of the Great Commission is not to go, but to wait. You're not to go until you have the power to go, until you're equipped to go. Luke ends his gospel with this command, and he opens the book of Acts with this same command. Let's, let's turn there to Luke 24. as He's closing out his gospel. Luke 24, starting in verse 44, and it's not going to be on the screens, so you have to actually grab a Bible that's in front of you or turn in your iPad or your, your phone or whatever you use. Who uses digital Bibles? Anybody? It's okay, I do. <laughs> Who's like paper only? Paper only. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't know how you keep track of things if everything's in paper. <laughs> okay. Luke 24. At some point, everything digital is going to fail, and I'm going to be like, teach me how to highlight my Bible again. Um, Luke 24, verse 44. They said to him, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So this is part of what he did during those 40 days. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day raised from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness for sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning 
in Jerusalem, beginning from Jerusalem, you are to be my witnesses of these things. There's a commissioning there. You're going to be my witnesses of these things. Verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The way Jesus says it in Luke, the way Luke tells this same story, the end of his gospel is, stay until you are clothed with power from on high. There to be witnesses, there to be sent ones to proclaim the gospel to all the nations, but first they are told to wait. They are told to stay put. Why? What's that all about? I think to be effective as Christians, it's, it's, to be effective as gospel witnesses, as disciple makers, it's such a big deal. There's so much at stake. People's eternity is at stake. It's such a big deal. And there's so many challenges that we face, that you and I face, that the disciples were about to face, that the reality is we cannot do it on our own power. You cannot do it out of your own strength, ingenuity, your own intellect. You can't do it. We can't do it. We can only be effective as we surrender to the empowerment of the Spirit. The best we can do, the very best, the the best and brightest that we can put forward is not good enough. It's not enough. They needed to be baptized with the Spirit. They needed Jesus to baptize them. And so they wait. They wait. They don't have to wait that long. Seven to ten days. They don't wait that long. But they waited. To say that they wait, it implies some things. It implies that what they were waiting for was worth waiting for. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not good at waiting. Naomi and I went to a restaurant the other day, a little Mexican restaurant. We walked up, and there's, there's a line out front. My knee-jerk reaction is, forget it, we're done. Let's go somewhere else. Anybody else, or is it just me that's, like, completely that impatient? <laughs> she said it takes more time to drive somewhere else, and so we, we waited. It wasn't worth the wait, actually. Um... Sorry, that maybe not the best example. Uh, we don't like waiting for things. Unless I like, I absolutely know this is going to be worth the wait. If I absolutely know that, that the end result of my waiting is this thing's going to be worth it. This meal's going to be worth it. This whatever it is. To wait means that there's been something that has been promised or hoped for that we are in a position of, it's not here yet, but we're looking forward to it. To wait means, I think for the disciples, there's something that's coming that they can't make happen themselves. They have to receive it. They couldn't create it on their own. So they have to wait. Wait. 
You can't work up the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can't make things happen. You can't force God to do things. But you can wait. To wait, I think, implies that there would be some testing, some trial, at least a little bit. Anybody else get impatient? Good. I'm not the only one. There'd be some testing. Will they try to make this thing happen on their own? Will they start preaching and, and uh, sharing the good news, the story of this resurrected Messiah on their own? Or would they wait? I think if I'm honest, I would be tempted to I had just seen Jesus for 40 days. He had just opened the scriptures to me. I would probably want, I mean, I don't know. I'm not there. I'm an impatient man. This is important for us because even now the reality is that we are waiting for things. There's unanswered prayers. There's, there's things that we're longing to see God do. We want to see God move in our county. We want to see a fresh outpouring of, of his activity amongst us. There's things that we want to see. We want him to return. We're waiting. We're longing for his return. Waiting is the posture that we find ourselves in more often than we realize. Here's what I think waiting is not, and this is important. Waiting is not staring up at the sky, not doing anything, twiddling your thumbs. In fact, if you continue to read, after the ascension, they're, they're doing that. They're staring up at the sky. And an angel says, no, go, <laughs> go wait. Waiting, what do they do? They actually, it's, it's not passively sitting around. They are conducting church business. They're actually installing Judas, obviously, is not a disciple anymore. He's not with them. They're installing a new apostle, replacing him. They're busy praying. They're doing things. They're doing life together they're not just passively staring at the sky, waiting passively. They're actively uh, doing things in the process of waiting. But they're not getting ahead of themselves. They're not forcing things to happen out of their own effort and ability. Waiting is not looking to others looking to others to do the things that God has called me to do. Waiting is not passively sitting around looking to others to do what God has already asked me to do. That's not waiting. That's being passive. I think we can fall into this trap of thinking, ah, somebody else will do it. It's okay. Somebody else will take care of it. Why even do anything? That's, what's, that's not the point of waiting. That's not what Jesus is telling them to do here. We wait because we need something from God. We wait because there's a promise of the Father that is coming, and we cannot be effective. We cannot be uh, used by God, by Jesus, as his hands and feet, his missionaries and his servants on the earth if we rush things and make it happen on our own power. It's not how it works. There is something that God does 
in us in this posture of waiting. But it's not passive. It's thinking about it. It's, it's like a farmer waiting for a crop. It's not like he's just sitting around waiting. There's still stuff that has to happen. So Jesus commands them to wait. Wait for what? The promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. The idea of being baptized, it means it implies to be immersed or covered with something. Even as John the Baptist baptized, John baptized in water, the disciples were to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Three years earlier or so, roughly, John the Baptist had left this, led this brief renewal, this, this movement in the Jewish people. He was calling them to repent and to turn away from their, from their, uh, their lifestyles, their, their dirty works, to receive forgiveness for their sins and to be baptized as a sign of their new relationship with God. But John made one thing very clear, that the Messiah was coming, and he wasn't the Messiah. There was coming a Messiah who would soon come, and he would baptize people not merely in water, but in the Holy Spirit. Luke, in his gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, said this. You can turn there if you have it. Luke 3, 16. Jesus answered them all, saying, I baptize, sorry, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism of John, John's the baptizer. Water is the thing that they're being baptized into. Repentance from sin was ultimately the issue. But John tells of another baptism that's coming, another baptizer that's coming, where Jesus is the baptizer. The Holy Spirit is the element. And power to be his witness is the issue that's at hand. But the idea of baptism is always that of immersion, of being covered, of overflowing. Jesus wants, this is the point, Jesus wants to immerse you, to cover you, to overflow you with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about overflowing. I've heard it described as it's one thing to fill up a cup. It's a whole nother issue to just keep dumping the water until it overflows. I think actually that's the way Jesus would describe it. Let's look at John. It's a different gospel, I know. Different author. John chapter 7, verse 37 On the last day of the feast, the great day, 
Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39 is the important one here. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been, was not yet glorified. Verse 38, sorry, verse 39 there is John's personal commentary. He's explaining what Jesus just said. Jesus said this sort of cryptic thing. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water will flow out of them. The overflow with rivers of living water. And John, as he does sometimes, he gives an explanation. He says what he's talking about there is the promise that they received at Pentecost. They'd be so full of the Spirit that out of them would flow rivers of living water. Jesus is describing the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and he's telling the very thing that he's telling them to go and wait for. So Jesus is saying here in Acts, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he's saying, there is going, something is going to happen in a few days. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John immersed you in water, and I'm going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. John drenched you in water, and I'm going to drench you in the Holy Spirit. This is ultimately, this is, this is the key to the rest of this book. To be effectively used in the world as a tool in Jesus' hand, as he continues to do and teach amongst us, we need this. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, what exactly is that? What does that even mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Let's jump ahead a little bit in the story to see what happened after they had waited. Turn one page over probably to uh, Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. This is what happens after they had waited. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So when the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes, when this thing, this promise that they had waited for comes, the way Luke describes it here, it's like, and I, I like that language, it's like, it reminds me of every time you see something miraculous in the prophets. They use that language. It's like this. It's like that. There's, there's really no good way of describing it. So Luke says it's, it's, it's something like a mighty wind. 
something like tongues of fire, something like a mighty wind came and immersed and filled the house with this great sound. And the effects of that was that the disciples were so filled with the Spirit, notice that, that word, they were so filled with the Spirit that something, and something like tongues of fire appeared above each of them and they began to speak in languages that they didn't know. Verse 11, as you keep going, it tells us what they were saying. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's what the point of that was. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what they were filled with was this overwhelming sense of God's greatness and this sense of his power. And they seemingly they proclaimed the greatness of God, telling of the great and mighty works of God. The Spirit was filling them, ultimately, with God's own vision and his own passion for himself. And they had nothing left to do but speak this prophetic utterance and praise. So Peter, keep going in chapter 2, Peter gets up and he has to explain what's going on. He's explaining What is happening in this baptism of the Holy Spirit? He says this, keep going in in chapter 2, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness until the moon and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes in great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So according to Peter, as Luke puts it, what Jesus said in Acts 1-4, when he said, wait for the promise of the Father, according to Peter, what he meant was that wait for the promise of Joel 2. Wait for the promise that we see in Joel 2 because it's going to be fulfilled. The promise of the Father is what is now being experienced amongst these disciples. I think this is confirmed. Keep going in Acts 2, starting in verse 32. Peter goes on with his sermon interpreting what's going on, and he says this, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this 
that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So here we see Jesus is doing the actual work of baptizing. He's pouring out this promise that he received from the Father. He enters into heaven. He receives from the Father that which would have been promised to him, and he pours it out on the disciples at Pentecost. And again, the question we have to ask is why? What's the point? Is it just for a, a good story? What, what was God doing here? Unto what end? I think part of the answer, at least, is that being baptized with the Holy Spirit is ultimately when a person who is already a believer receives this extraordinary power, receives this amazing power to exalt Jesus, to proclaim him, to continue what Jesus is doing and teaching on the earth. Let me try and show you a few things of what I think this is all about. Let's jump back to Luke 24, bouncing all around here. Remember, as you turn there, remember Acts 4 said that Jesus ordered them not to depart but to wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now in Luke 24, 49, Jesus says almost the same thing. Remember, he says, And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What's important here is that you see what Jesus is focused on. What Jesus is focused on here, of all the things that he could be focused on when he's talking about this promise of the Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what he's focused on is ultimately empowerment, that you would be clothed with power. He told them at the end of chapter of Luke 24 that they are to preach to all the nations that they are to be his witnesses, to proclaim the good news amongst the nations. And the point, I think, of this verse in 49 is that you cannot do that effectively. They can't do it effectively unless they are clothed with power from God. Unless they're baptized with the Spirit. Second thing here that I think is the essence of what God is doing. Right after Jesus says that they would be baptized in the Spirit, back in Acts 1, the disciples say, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom? I'm jumping ahead here a little bit. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. So here, the baptism of the Spirit is seen as this coming upon. That God comes upon them, and he gives them power to witness. 
Being baptized in the Spirit is about empowerment. It's an empowerment for ministry. It's empowerment for life. It's empowerment for the gospel. It's important to note, I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think either any of these texts suggest that what's happening here at the baptism of the Holy Spirit is new birth or conversion. I don't think that's what's happening here. There are plenty of biblical reasons why I think that. Uh, I already think, I think that at this point, the disciples are already born again. They've already submitted their life to the lordship and leadership of Jesus. They already had the spirit dwelling in them. He breathed on them. But I think there's something more that's happening here. Jesus didn't say, wait in Jerusalem until you are born again. Or until you're converted, until you are brought into the family. He says, go wait until you're clothed with power. He doesn't say that you'll receive membership into the body. You'll be a part of the church. He says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And look, when Peter explains what the promise of the, whole, promise of the Father is and how it's being fulfilled, his focus is on the promise that we looked at from Joel 2. There are other promises from other prophets that would have dealt with salvation and new birth. But Joel 2 is not focusing on that. Joel 2 is focusing on something different. It's focusing on a new power to prophesy that wasn't limited to an elect few, wasn't limited to the prophets of old, but is on all of God's people. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see vision. Your old men shall dream dreams. What God is doing is not limited to just the select few. And lastly here, it's important to note that the baptism of the Spirit is described as the filling with the Spirit. That's really important because as you begin to read the rest of this book, you're going to see this repeated theme over and over and over again. The idea of filling is almost always associated with this incredible power that comes on people as the Spirit empowers them to do ministry in the book of Acts. Notice that when the, Spirit, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens, it says that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The effect of that being powerful and miraculous proclamation of the gospel that 3,000 people would be saved that day. So this is really important for the rest of the book. In Acts 4, verse 8, Peter is again filled with the Holy Spirit, and he speaks with such power that the Jewish leaders are amazed at his boldness in spite of the fact that they, they know he's uneducated. Acts 4.31, other disciples were praying, and the place which they were praying was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result is that they're 
a result of this filling was that they spoke the word of God with extraordinary boldness. And that Jesus was exalted further. In Acts 6, we meet Stephen, who was full of faith and full of the Spirit. And Luke tells us in verse 8 that he was therefore full of power. And he did wonders and signs amongst the people. But especially in verse 10, that the leaders could not resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. His fullness gave him this extraordinary power to proclaim Jesus, proclaim the gospel in the face of persecution. I could keep going. Acts 9, Paul is filled with the spirit. Acts 11, Barnabas is filled with the Spirit. Acts 13, Paul's again filled with the Spirit. In each one of these instances, it's always for the sake of the gospel to be proclaimed, for the the kingdom to be advanced, and the good news to be spread. We need this. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit if we're going to be effective at making disciples. If we're going to be effective missionaries, if we're going to be effective parents, whatever the Lord calls us to do, you can't do it rightly on your own power, your own ability, your own striving. We need this. I've heard it said that it may be more useful to describe the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a condition or a state of being rather than an experience. We should perhaps ask, are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Instead of saying, have you been? Because it seems like this was something that happened regularly. They were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit, and things happened. God moved. The gospel was proclaimed. So what's our takeaway with this this week? What do we do with this? I think ultimately, like the disciples before us, we need to wait. (laughs) We need to wait on the Spirit. I spent some time this week reading some stories of, I don't know, we, elders met Friday night, we had this conversation about every move of God throughout history began with prayer. I spent some time this week just reading stories of great revivals throughout church history. And they all started with just waiting on God, simple prayer. But the waiting is not to be passive. And it's not to be presumptuous either. I think that's, you could fall into either of those categories, passivity or being presumptuous and assuming you're going to make things happen. The disciples, church leaders through church history, they didn't go around trying to manufacture something, make something happen. But equally, they were not content with the status quo of their own personal religious life and the the life of the community around them. We've been given a promise of an empowering presence, an overflowing of the very presence of God who created all things. 
In his book, Forgotten God, Francis Chan said this. If I told you I had an encounter with God, and when he entered my body, he gave me a supernatural ability to play basketball, wouldn't you expect to see an amazing improvement in my jump shot, my defense, my speed on the court? After all, this is God we're talking about. And if you saw no change in my athleticism, wouldn't you question the validity of my encounter? There's a problem that many in the church, we claim that we have encountered the risen Jesus. That we have the spirit, the very spirit of God living and residing in us. We claim these things. And I'm, I'm not saying you don't. But there should be a marked difference in your life if that's the case. If you have truly encountered the risen Jesus, there should be a difference. Francis goes on to say later in that chapter, the world questions our integrity, our sanity, or even worse, our God. I believe that we're living in a day and age where people, we need to begin to ask God to show up. We need to begin seeing God work actively through our lives and our ministries. That people around us would be able to say, undoubtedly, God is at work amongst them. I don't know what it is, but there's something different about this community of people. God is among them. Or like in Acts, we just know they've been with Jesus. They're uneducated, unlearned men, but they've been with Jesus. If we're to be a church that's about making disciples, if we're going to do the Great Commission, we're going to baptize people and teach them to follow Jesus, we cannot do it in our own strength. We can't do it in our own power and our own ability. If we attempt to obey the way of God in our own strength, you guys, we will fail. And you will fail miserably. And you'll be frustrated. If we as a community attempt to live by our own strength, our own power, if we attempt to do good works of social justice and, and the reality of, of ministering the gospel in our community, in our own power, you will fail. It will never be enough. But the good news is the promise of the Father is that we're not left to our own ability. We're not left to our own strengths, our own intellects, our own ambitions. There is a promise of the Father. There's an empowering of the Spirit that is there for us to receive and to move out in. And to receive over and over and over again. And we need it. We need to move out of this empowering of the Spirit. Learning to listen learning to commune with and to be led by and directed by the Spirit in our day-to-day -day lives, to partner with Him, 
The third person of the Trinity is alive and living and active in you. We need to live like that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you didn't leave us as orphans. That you didn't leave us ill-equipped. That you are faithful. God, I pray that you would continue to teach us how to wait on you. How to be participation, participating with you. Continue to teach us how to look to you, how to listen to you, how to follow your leading and your guiding. Father, we thank you that you have given us everything we need. That is, those of us who are following the way of Jesus, that have committed to submitting to your lordship and your leadership, that the spirit is in us. God, I'm asking that you would be amongst us and overflowing like rivers of living water out of us that you would impact those around us, that they would know that there's something different, something unique about us because you are flowing out of us, overflowing out of us. Jesus, we love you and we trust you.